Let's make our way in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians today. And as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. So if you want to look at the historical account, this is the place where Paul first arrived at Corinth. And you have to wonder that as Paul makes his way to this city of Corinth there in the Roman Empire, that he didn't maybe question God just a little bit. Like, are you sure this is the spot, Lord? Are you sure of all the places you could send me to go, that I would go to uh, Corinth of all places? In fact, as you consider what Corinth meant to the ancient empire, uh, the the very phrase to be a Corinthian meant to live a, a loose moral lifestyle. They were truly known as the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And so for people living this kind of a way, you have to wonder, like of all places to plant a church, is this it? And yet we know from Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And so as Paul arrived there in Corinth and he planted the church, truly that's what he witnessed. It was the grace of God poured out on the people of the Corinthian church. And in fact, as Paul wrote his first letter to them, he was writing to this church that was so very gifted. And as he spoke to them about spiritual gifts, the word uh, spiritual giftings was the word charisma. And inside that word is the word charis, which is uh, our word for grace. That they were given not because of any great thing that they had done, but just because of the love of Christ. He gave them all these giftings. And yet the issue for the Corinthians wasn't that they were gifted. It was that they lacked maturity. And this is what Paul is writing to them about in his first letter. That you've got all these giftings. You've got all these manifestations of the Spirit. People are coming to know the Lord. And yet you're lacking maturity because you do not have love. They failed miserably in that department. And so what Paul is writing to them in this first letter is to encourage them in the arena of love that they're actually called to love one another and to combine that, to bring that together with their giftings. So as Paul's written this first letter, he then is concerned. He's worried about how did the church receive it. He had to write to them largely correctively in his first letter. And so he sent his protege Titus to go find out how did this thing go for them. And it wasn't until they got together in Philippi where he got word from Titus um, that it didn't go well. That in fact, as they received the letter, um, they didn't uh, look at this introspectively. How can we correct these issues that Paul has brought about before our eyes? But instead, uh, they denied the message. And in order to make the message not valid, they attacked the messenger. And so many times, this is what the enemy wants to do. He wants to he wants to denounce the message through attacking the very messenger that sent it. And so they attacked Paul's authority, they attacked Paul's giftings, they attacked even Paul's integrity, saying he wrote to us saying he was going to show up and yet he didn't come, therefore you can't believe anything this guy says. Completely forgetting the fact that Paul was detained by the Spirit for other purposes. And so they attacked the Apostle Paul, and yet what he wrote to them in chapter 2 of this second letter, this most personal and heartfelt letter that he would write to any church, he said to them in verse 4, that I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you should know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul wrote to them from a place of love. He cared deeply for these Corinthians. They didn't understand the context. And so as Paul's arrived here in chapter 3, what he is communicating to them is that they have a veil over their eyes. They can't see the truth clearly. And so what he said at the end of our time last week, but we all with unveiled face 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. His desire was for them to open their eyes, to look around and realize you're being transformed. You're getting prepared for the heavenly scene. You're getting prepared for all of eternity as we grow through this process we looked at last week called sanctification. That I am cleansed and yet I am being cleansed. First John 1 John 1.9, be being cleansed. I'm working this thing out with fear and trembling as I go through this life being prepared for eternity with the Lord. And so it's in this light that we arrive in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, since we had this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But verse 2, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So how is Paul operating in this ministry, one where he is uh, attacked even by his own people. What he says is, uh, I, I go about my ministry knowing that I've received mercy. What is mercy? But it, it is not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I do not deserve, but mercy is not getting what I do deserve. And the, the truth that we see in our life when our eyes are unveiled, is, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 3.23, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the resultant of all of us falling short of the glory of God is we deserve the wages for our work, and the wages of sin is death. This is what you and I actually deserve. How's that for a welcome to Woodlawn Chapel this morning? What you and I really truly deserve is hell and damnation. And yet because of his great mercy for us, he doesn't give us what we do deserve. And so as Paul is saying, as I minister to people, I remember what I actually deserve for my actions. And so as a result, I can come with joy knowing that God is working this thing out from glory to glory. And also, as he's communicated in these first verses, as I share the word of God, I'm not sharing it with you in craftiness or handling the word deceitfully. As other teachers came into Corinth, they would take and manipulate God's word in order to make themselves look better, in order to make it more pleasing to the ears of the people, which brings to mind that clearly uh, their favorite uh, classic rock band was Twisted Scripture. Right, So as they were twisting the scripture in order for this to sound more appealing, what Paul says is, I'm not going to take it. No, not going to take it. Clearly no 80s hair metal fans out there. But that's what Paul is saying to them. We weren't going to present scripture in that way. And also, the fact of the matter is, it's our natural tendency for every one of us to want to be liked. Or at the very least, to not want to be disliked. None of us want to intentionally be disliked. And the tendency can be to manipulate the Word of God so that we're not disliked or so that we're liked better. And yet what Paul reminds them of is that he is presenting God's Word before God, not really before them. So if they didn't like the truth of the Gospel, the Gospel wasn't going to change. He wasn't going to impress them by tickling their ears. And this really, as we go through the Old Testament, this is the difference between uh, King Saul and King David. If you look at their lives in First and Second Samuel, <clears throat> what you'll find is that in large part, when you look at the life of Saul and the life of David, i got to tell you, uh, Saul didn't mess things up nearly as bad as David did. That's the reality. I mean, in a lot of ways, Saul was a better guy than David. And yet, in this category of glorifying God, there was no comparison. That Saul took the great things that the Lord did and he glorified himself. 
And yet what David continually did in his life is as God worked through him, even through his flaws, even through his mistakes, he sought to always give glory to God. And so this is really the question. Who are you trying to glorify? Yourself or are you trying to glorify the God of the universe? Now, as we arrive in verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. <clears throat> verse 4, whose minds uh, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And so, the truth is about the gospel is there are just people who will not believe. It doesn't matter how many times you share it with them until you're blue in the face. As you convey to them that their sins are forgiven, that this is the good news, that God actually fights on your behalf, that He is seeking to bring you into an eternal relationship with Him, that there are people who just simply will not desire to have this. It's crazy, and yet what Paul is communicating to them here is that they have veiled eyes and they're blinded by the God of this age, none other than Satan himself. That he has actually put a blinder on their eyes so they cannot see the truth. And the blinder initially started in Genesis chapter 3. Right there you see the introduction to the serpent in the garden. <clears throat> and what Adam and Eve choose to do is they choose to believe a lie. And as a result, they obey and give themselves over to another master. All authority was given to these two to tend the garden, to look after it. And yet, they chose to obey a different master and pass down that same sin nature that you and I now have, that now exists in our flesh to us, that we have to have the blinders taken off in order to properly see it. What Paul says in Second Timothy chapter 2 is this, as we come across a world that is in large part blinded, what he communicates in verse 24 is, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. In verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having, taken cap having been taken captive by him to do his will that the world at large has been taken captive. And they are in opposition, not to you and I. It can feel very personal at times, but they're not in opposition to us. They're in opposition to the message of the cross, to the message of the gospel. This is who they're fighting against, even though they can't see it clearly. And how are you and I to operate? What verse 24 says is, as a servant, we're not to quarrel. We're actually called to be gentle, to be humble, but then be prepared to teach in humility, to correct them so that they may come to their senses. And yet, as we operate, for many of us, we have to wonder, how, how do we do that? How do I do that in my daily life? I've got people that I'm praying for that I want to know Christ. How do I go about this? Here's a, a few suggestions I might have. First of all, Matthew chapter 12. This is a spot where Jesus heals physical blindness. What we have going on in the world around us is not as much a physical blindness, but a spiritual one. And yet this, this plays out practically in our lives. As Jesus heals a man who is both mute and blind, what the Pharisees, of course, come up to him and say is, uh, how dare you? Are you operating under the power of the devil? And Jesus quickly corrects them that it wasn't the power of Beelzebub that he was working under. But here's what he says in verse 29. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. 
And so there is Satan who is operating with authority that we gave up, by the way. And Jesus didn't even question the authority of Satan. Think about him in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Satan approaches him to tempt him. He takes him up to a high mountain. He says, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. If you just bow to me, I'll give you authority over these kingdoms. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think so. Instead, he rebukes him with scripture. But what he knows is temporarily, because we gave it up, and it wasn't until the cross that Jesus actually reclaimed it. But at this point in time, Satan has authority in this temporary setting. And so Jesus doesn't deny that, but he goes back to Scripture. He goes back to the Word of God to actually use that as his weapon against the enemy. But here, what he's saying is the enemy needs to be first bound so that we can have victory in these situations. That we have to pray for the blinders to come off and Satan to actually be bound. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, this is what the Lord has given to us. He says, I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so the power that he has given to us is to actually pray that the enemy be bound and that the blinders be removed. But so often my prayer is, Lord, would you save him? Lord, would you save him? What he's encouraging us to do is pray, Lord, would you please let him see? God is a gentleman. He's not going to force anyone into something that is not their choice. He's not like the enemy who forces people into things. He wants us to have free will, free choice. The prayer that we can pray for those loved ones, for our neighbors, for the people that we work with, is, Lord, help them to be able to see. And for those that come to finally realize, when the blinders are moved and they can finally see what's really happening, here's the thing, it doesn't matter what they did. It doesn't matter the lifestyle they led. It doesn't matter outside of them just coming to a repentant relationship with Jesus. And what Jesus says by his own words, as they come to him in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. His promise is not to reject anyone who comes to him. A beautiful promise from Scripture, regardless of the life that they've led. And no one probably knew that better throughout Scripture than the guy who's writing 2 Corinthians right now. Saul of Tarsus, a man who was trained in Scripture, and yet he went out on a vengeful rage against the church as a murderer, one who would literally drag families away from one another, drag parents away from children, throwing them in jail, having them stoned to death. This is the the man who's now writing to us in 2 Corinthians, who in Acts chapter 9, as he was making his way to Damascus in order to persecute the church, in order to actually sentence people just like he did Stephen to their death. And in Acts chapter 9, here's what happens. And then uh, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul, seeing the light of Christ, he was sent now to Damascus on a way different mission. And as he made his way to Damascus, he meets up with a man uh, named Ananias. And in verse 18, Ananias prays over. Saul of Tarsus, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. 
Saul was blinded to what was really taking place, thinking he was doing the right thing, thinking that he was operating actually as a vessel for God, and he was being used by the enemy until the scales fell off his eyes, until he was able to finally see the truth. And now here this man continues in verse 5, and he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So what is the message that Saul is bringing? That is now the Apostle Paul. He is bringing the message of the cross, plain and simple. Focusing his message on Jesus and the fact that he has intentionally made himself a bondservant. What it means to be a bondservant is when a, a master was so good to you that you intentionally say, I want to serve that master all the rest of my days. Yes, I have freedom, but I want to be a, a servant of this master. And this is what Paul refers to himself as as he serves the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he, what he says is, this is all that you need to do to be convinced. All that you need to do to be convinced is to simply look to the cross. Now, it wasn't always this way. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul was now going out planting churches. And as he arrived in one of the uh, most uh, beautiful cities in all of the Grecian Empire, he arrives there in uh, Athens, the place where the philosophers were. And it's important to note that for the Apostle Paul, he was one of the most brilliant minds of that day. As he wrote through Scripture, I mean, he was trained in the best Hebrew schools underneath Gamaliel. He was raised in uh, Tarsus, a Roman provincial city. So he was a Roman citizen. He had Greek uh, training in the arts and in culture, and yet he had this deep-seated Hebrew background as a Pharisee. So very conservative was the Apostle Paul. And in Acts chapter 17, as he arrived there in Athens, he got the chance to go speak to the philosophers there in Athens. And they would gather together at the Oropagus or Mars Hill, and they would discuss all the, the ideas and the thoughts of that day. And as they gathered there at the Oropagus, Paul delivers from verse 22 to verse 34 one of the most beautiful messages ever written. In fact, most Bible scholars believe that uh, homiletically and hermeneutically, that's the way it was presented and the way that the message was written, that it was uh, the perfect message. And yet as Paul presents this message about this unknown God, and he, he reveals the God of heaven to these philosophers gathered there on Mars Hill, as he arrived at the end of this supposedly most perfect message, this is their response. Some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from them. And yet, as you look at this most perfect of messages, supposedly, you're going to notice something missing. Never one time does he mention the name of Jesus. Never one time does Paul mention the cross. And so, the next spot that he would arrive in Acts 18 is Corinth. And it's there that I believe this came to mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he said, For I determined not to know anything among you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm never going to come at this from the wisdom of the world again. I'm going to only come to you proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to simplify the message and focus on Him. And this is, as Paul writes, his focus was intentional from that day forward. It was on Jesus Christ, Him high and lifted up. He's the one with the power to change souls. He's the one for the, with the power to transform from the inside out. And so this was the message going forward. And Paul is no doubt reflecting on that. Now, as he continues in verse 6, he says, For it is the God who commanded light 
to shine out of the darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Unlike the law that we looked at last week, that on the face of Moses could only stay shining for so long because the law could only take you so far. The law could only point to the fact that you can't accomplish it, that you need a Savior, that in light of that, the glory that exists in Jesus never fades. The glory that is in His face, it never fails. And Paul here in verse 6, he's quoting now from Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, at the very beginning of Scripture, that God said, let there be light. And you know what happened? There was light. Why? Because God said so. That's why. And so if we can believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if you can wrap your mind around that or even begin to have faith in that, you can believe all the rest of Scripture. That Paul says this same God that said, let there be light, he has also given us time and time again promises throughout Scripture. And what this does is it reveals a part of his character. That God is who he says he is. That God does what he says he's going to do. And so as we see him revealed in Scripture, we actually have this beautiful opportunity to see God the Father. There are many that will say, look, why can't we see God? In fact, Jesus' own followers said that. Philip, in John chapter 14, this is what he said, if you just show us the Father, we believe. I mean, this would be easy. Just show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show me the Father? So as Jesus is revealed in the gospel message, what we see is the very character of the Father played out in in daily life, in interactions. How would he deal with the sin situation? How would he deal with internal strife and struggle? How did he deal with all these things that we have to deal with? We see the Father and his character through the life and the person of Jesus. Verse 7, he says, but we have this hidden treasure in earthen vessels uh, that the excellence of God, excuse me, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And so what we see here is he has decided, he has made this decision to place his light in earthen vessels. And who are the earthen vessels? They're us. What were the earthen vessels in that day? They were basically common tableware. There was nothing fantastic about them. They were just the glasses you set out for people to drink in. And they did no good unless they had something in them. They were just empty vessels until the good stuff was put in there. This is what he's comparing us to. We are these earthen vessels, and we just exist milling around, shuffling our feet around until the good stuff is placed in. If you consider what it would look like Christmas time, right? We get excited about Christmas. You've got the beautiful packages under the tree. But but who's excited about the beautifully wrapped package when you unveil and you open and you pull it all apart and you get in there and it's an empty box? Nobody's excited about that. And yet, if you took that thing you've always wanted, the thing you've always desired, and you wrapped it up in newspaper or, or brown paper bags, how excited are you when you get to the bottom of it and it's the thing you always wanted? It's a time to rejoice because the gift is what's inside, not the wrapping paper. Now, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death, 
for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 12, so then death is working in us, but life in you. And now for our Old Testament story time, your guys' favorite part of the Sunday. Uh, We're going to go back to Judges chapter 6. Now in Judges chapter 6 through 8, we have the story of Gideon. If you're going with us through our daily Bible reading, uh, the Bible study together plan, we've been stuck in the law. I want to give you encouragement. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to make it through the law. You're going to make it past Deuteronomy. You're going to end up in Joshua and Judges. And by the time you get to Judges, man, if you like action movies, this is like the PG-13, even some rated R parts of the Old Testament. There's some wild stories. I mean, stuff you can't believe. They ain't talking about that down in Children's Church, some of those stories. And yet we, we arrive here in Judges. And what you see is through the story of Judges is a sin cycle. That for the nation of Israel, God's given them these promises if they just simply obey. And yet what they do, what we tend to always do, we we drift away. And as they drift away, God allows persecution to happen from the outside. Uh, They're picked on by their neighboring countries. They cry out after years of this to the Lord. And then the Lord sends a judge, a deliverer, to deliver them. And then the whole cycle starts back over again. They do pretty good for a while. And as we arrive in chapter 6, we have the story of Gideon. And here, uh, Gideon is one of those judges called by God. But up to this point, they're being picked on from the outside by the Midianites. And what the Midianites would do is they would wait until the nation got uh, the harvest all done. They'd wait until they planted it, and they harvested it, and they brought it to the threshing floor, and they got their wheat harvest finally down to the grain you can actually use, and then they would attack them at the threshing floor. Stinking Midianites after them. And so they would take the grain away from them. Which leads us to the point to where Gideon is now in the middle of the night at the threshing floor because he doesn't want to be caught there by the Midianites and have his grain that he's going to feed his family with taken away. And it's there at the threshing floor that the Lord actually meets Gideon. And he he calls him a great man of God. And Gideon looks at himself and he said, I'm not that at all. I'm from one of the smallest of all the tribes. I'm a Benjamite. I'm hiding from the Midianites. I'm no great man. You got the wrong guy, Lord. But God says, oh, I don't think so, Gideon. I got the right guy. I'm going to raise you up as the next judge of Israel, and you're going to fight against the Midianites. And so after a back and forth, Gideon, he fleeces the Lord. God shows him his great power, and then he decides to call on the men of Israel to stand up and fight against the Midianites. And he calls all the men together to fight against the armies of Midian. And 32,000 men show up to fight against the Midianites. You've got to feel pretty good about that, right? If you're Gideon, you didn't think you could do it. Now 30,000 guys show up. You're like, yes. And then the Lord comes to him. Because there's a little problem. You see, there's 32,000 Israelites, and there's 135,000 Midianites. You've got a 5 to 1 odds. Things aren't looking good, but at least i got 30,000 guys. Then the Lord comes to Gideon, and he says, Gideon, we got an issue. Tell me about it, Lord. No, no, um, you've got too many men. You see, because if you go at this battle with five to one odds, uh, people will still tend to give themselves credit. That's how guys work. Even if it's uh, not us doing it, we'll still take the credit if we can. And so he knows that about these men. He says, here's what I want you to do, Gideon. I want you to take and proclaim to all the men in the army, if there's any uh, scaredy cats, anybody that's a little bit of a chicken, you can go home. If you've got a new wife you just married, if you've got a, a crop you just put in the field, if you're scared, if you're a fraidy cat, in any way, I want you to just go home. And so you know as Gideon is given this address, in the back of his mind he's thinking, I'm going to probably lose a couple thousand guys. Now it's to his surprise that um, 
22,000 men go home. He's, he's left now with 10,000 men. He's got to be like, really, Lord? We went from 5 to 1 to now 13 to 1 odds. This thing is really, really bad. This is not great for us. And yet the Lord comes to him and he says, Gideon, we got a problem. Tell me about it, Lord. No, no, you've got too many men. You're still going to have a tendency to take credit for this. There's way too many of you. Uh, you're going to want to take credit, and I'm going to actually deliver. I'm going to give you victory. So I want you to take the men down to the spring. I want you to have them get down and take a drink from the waters. And all the ones that get down on their knees, I want you to separate. And the ones that scoop up the water and they lap it from their hands like dogs, I want you to separate them into a camp. And now Gideon's got to be scared. Who's going who's gonna to be on which side? And what happens is the men that got down on their knees, there was 9,700 of them and 300 that lapped the water like dogs from their hands. And God says, those are the ones I want. I want you to go into this battle with 300 men. 450 to 1 odds. Uh, those are odds I like. Really, Lord? Those are odds you like? Yeah, because the, the truth is, um, with odds like that, there's no way anybody's going to give Gideon credit. It, it looked really, really bad for Gideon. And so the Lord then gives Gideon the battle plan. He said, here's your plan. I want you to take a, a lamp, a light. I want you to put it inside an earthen vessel. And then I want you to go and surround the camp of Midian with your 300 guys with a trumpet. Okay, Lord, that's a terrible plan. I mean, there's no sword. There's no machine guns here. This is really the plan. I've got a trumpet and a light with a vessel over the top of it. And yet Gideon was obedient enough to do what God asked him to do. He split the men up into three camps. And as they surrounded the Midianites, they were told to say this in verse 20, the sword of the Lord and Gideon is what they were to cry out as they broke the vessels and they blew the trumpets. And so Gideon and his 300 men did just that. They surrounded 135,000 men. They had their vessels in their hands and they broke the vessels and they blew their trumpets and they shouted the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And then this is what took place. In verse 22, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to beth As the trumpet blew and the vessel was broken, the Midianites were so scared by what happened, they drew their swords and actually ran it through one another. And the Lord had a tremendous victory that day. But this has a, an implication to us today. You see, because it's the Lord, as He gets victory, it's almost always through brokenness. It's maybe not the most popular point of the message today, but it's nonetheless true. That for the light that He's placed in us to shine, we must first be broken. It was through brokenness and through obedience that the victory actually happened for Gideon and his crew. So as the vessel is broken, the other part I love about this is they proclaimed the sword of the Lord and Gideon before they ever even had victory. Did you catch that? They proclaimed victory before they ever had actual victory. By faith, they knew that God was going to deliver them. Now, as Paul continues here in verse 13, he says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believed and therefore we speak knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. 
4, verse 15, All things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. What Paul is writing about is his faith, his belief. A quote from Psalm 116, verse 10, where he says, I believe the Lord, and then I spoke. We're not asked to speak words that we haven't already received from the Lord. As he's spoken words to us, what we are encouraged to do is believe him, to take him at his word. And in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the thing that seems like it's circumstances that I can't possibly survive on my own, the Lord's promise is to actually deliver us. And so as we read through the Word, and we begin to see His promises, promises littered throughout Scripture, hundreds of them, things like uh, Matthew 28.20 where He says, I will uh, be with you to the end of the age. Or Romans 8.28 where He says, He brings all things to the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Or 1 John chapter 4.4 where He says, Greater is He that is in you than he that is in this world. As the Lord brings these things back to remembrance, we can hear these things, we can believe, and then we have the ability to speak. And as we speak and as we communicate with one another, what Paul says is that we communicate now with thanksgiving. It may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. But remember what he just said, we're persecuted. But in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of being uh, struck down but not destroyed, we're actually called not to have a spirit of grumpiness but have a spirit of thanksgiving. And so many times as we gather together, the tendency is to just want to belabor how we're being beaten down, belabor how we're being persecuted from all sides. Or we come into this place to worship, and I don't know about you, but for years of my life, it sounded like, Great is thy faithfulness, Great is thy faithfulness, Going to morning, new mercy. This is how we sing. But this is the God who delivers us, who's completed these things, who's promised us victory. We should be knowing that we're being made from glory to glory, knowing that the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed. We should be able to sing, Great is thy faithfulness! Great is thy faithfulness, O God! Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Thank you, Jesus. This is how we should be communicating, how we should be praising Him, because His promises are always true. And if He says He's going to bring about light, there's going to be light. And if He says He's going to see me through this, then He's going to see me through this. And nobody knew this maybe better than Paul, who saw all kinds of persecution in his day. In fact, verse 17, here's here's what Paul says about his own affliction. He says in verse 17, Our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says the things that he's experienced in his life are a light and momentary affliction. I'm going to skip ahead a few weeks just to give you a little bit of highlights of some of the things Paul's talking about from uh, chapter 11. He says, I've been in labors more abundantly, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths more often. Uh, Labor, stripes, or being beaten, uh, prison, and death. And yet Paul says, these are light momentary afflictions. These things that I've experienced, this is but for a moment. These things are, are temporary at best. 
And so the difference that I have between the Apostle Paul so often is perspective. Paul had a proper perspective about what his life looked like. He was able to say to live as Christ, but to die as gain. If I live, I get the opportunity to share Jesus with people. But man, if I go on to be with him, whoo, there's some gain in that. I'm excited about that day I get to be together with him. And compared to the glory of God, none of this stuff really matters. And it doesn't make relationships or people less important. It means the things I'm afflicted with that I want to just complain and be grumpy about, these things are light and momentary. As we consider us as being earthen vessels, I mean, think about that. God chose you as an earthen vessel to put his light in. As we're being broken, as we're being cracked, this is the opportunity now that the light has to shine forth. As I'm being broken down, hard-pressed on every side, and, and as I'm being broken, here's what happens to the people outside. Um, they get to see hope in me. As I'm still maintaining hope and being hopeful in the midst of this difficult situation, others are going to look and they're going to ask, why are you so hopeful with that diagnosis, with that loss, with that relationship that just went away? How is it that you are still hopeful? This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The people ought to look at our lives and go, how in the world are you so hopeful? And right there you have your opportunity to give a defense. The word in the Greek is apologia. It's where the study of uh, apologetics comes from. It's a reasonable defense of your faith. But it all begins with how in the world, in this mess, are you actually hopeful? And we don't get to have that unless the vessel cracks, unless there's people that can see the light in us, unless we're willing to be vulnerable with one another. So I'm just going to get real with you right now. This is why I have hope in this situation. The last thing I want to note is we consider the fact that these things are temporary, but the things which are not seen are actually eternal, is this. Uh, and we're going to get into this more next week in, in chapter 5. But remember, please, that you are earthen vessels. And here's the thing about that. Uh, God knows it. He's not surprised. He doesn't think that you're more than what you actually are. He doesn't need you to be all that in a bag of chips. Psalm 103 verse 14 says that he knows your frame. He knows that you are dust. He knows this about us. We think we've got to have it all together, all going on, so we look as pretty as we can. And yet God knows us. He, know, he doesn't have a higher expectation on you. He knows better. I often think I'm going to do way better in this situation than what I actually do. But as I stumble and as I fumble, it gives me a chance to be humble with people and say, this is who I really am, and yet God is so much greater. He is so much mightier. And in the midst of His great love for me, as flawed as I am, as cracked as I am, He chose you and I, of all people, and put the most indescribable, unbelievable gift within. That'd be the, the gift of Jesus as a Christ, the, the glory of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you for this beautiful promise. Thank you for, for some reason, choosing us, Lord. For you so loved us that you chose us. You actually gave your life for us from before the foundation of the earth, knowing what we're going to be, you still came and you still died. There is no greater love than that. 
Father, as we prepare our hearts to take communion here in just a few minutes, help us to just be able to reflect upon that. Reflect upon your brokenness that you gave so that the light of the world could actually shine forth. To be an example that as we are being broken, we're actually being made more and more like you. Our flesh wants to resist it, yet the Spirit knows it's what must happen. Thank you so much that the inward man is being renewed. Day by day, we're being made more like you, prepared more and more for heaven as we go. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you for not giving up on us, Lord. Thank you that we get the opportunity to remember here in just a few moments that you gave your life and you died on our behalf. Our propitiation. The payment turned away wrath. Jesus' name.